This is the Change Management Podcast by the University of South Wales. My name is Jonathan Deacon, Professor of Marketing in the School of Design, Digital and Marketing, and I'm joined by my colleague Phil Harfield from the Faculty of Creative Industries, and Phil is an expert in design thinking. Hello, Phil. Hi, Jonathan. Pleasure as always. As always. <laughs> in Season 3, we're exploring the concept of design thinking, how it can apply to business and how it works in practice. We discuss how design thinking can help any organisation become an agile one. In this episode, we'll be discussing how the pandemic has acted as a catalyst for innovation and how it has brought a new focus on how we deliver safe, people-centred services. To enable us to discuss this, we'd like to welcome our guest, who is visiting professor at USW and interim chair of Digital Health and Care Wales, Bob Hudson. Hello, Bob. Hello, Jonathan. Good to be here. And good to have you with us. Now, 2020 changed some things for all organisations and changed everything for some others. The pandemic affected all aspects of our lives, forcing us to embrace a, a host of new behaviours. And organisations have seen a decade of change take place in just a few short months, of course. This has meant that agility in organisational management has become a very key skill. And I think if we take that concept of agility and how we manage organisations, I think we can probably call that a way of how we go about redesigning organisations. So today we're going to be talking, first of all, about service redesign. So, Bob, in your experience, what does service redesign mean? For me, um, my background, obviously, in healthcare management, it's simply the way that we change services for the better. And what I mean by that is in terms of delivering improved outcomes, whether that's at a population level in terms of overall health and well-being, whether it's for individual patients in terms of you know recovery from, from treatment, but also about the experience of how people use our services and how that feels, the experience for patients, the public, for staff. Uh, and and lastly, um, we're a public service, so value, value for money. And the pandemic, has that, has that accelerated that service redesign? It has, uh, and extraordinary ways, really, Jonathan. You know, for someone who has been in the NHS as long as I was, 30, 35 years, the NHS is constantly changing. The service that I see now is very different from when I joined back in the early 1980s. But the scale of change over the last 18 months has been utterly unprecedented. And you know it's been it's been forced in part forced upon us, but also I think opportunities have been seized to do things very differently, particularly with the role that I've got now, looking at what's happened around digital transformation of services and and uh, sort of digital first models of service delivery becoming the norm. Yeah, I think that that concept of digital first behaviours on on both sides, supplier and consumer. Uh, Phil, from our perspective, theoretically then, service redesign, what, what's the theoretical meaning behind it? It's about doing things better, isn't it? So building better services, right, is what it's about. So uh, I suppose if we think about the good, bad and the ugly of services, you know, the, the hotel check-in experience, the airport experience, perhaps the online job-seeking experience, or but from the other side, from the organisational side, how do we attract and retain skilled people? So I thought all these kind of service design issues are something we 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 are involved in in our daily lives. So I think fundamentally it's about how do we develop purpose in this? How do we develop understanding of our meaning for this? And how do we really make sure we're not putting services out there that don't add value, don't engage? don't really have meaning and purpose for our, for our users. So really it's about good. You know, what does good design mean? 
we have to communicate this purpose with our services, a purpose which responds to the needs of our users. So it's about purpose central to to what we do, but also, I suppose, in in a design thinking concept, we're talking about you know understanding the user's experience here. Want to empower your teams to think differently and solve complex problems? Start your design thinking journey today. Search USW Design Thinking. Yeah, I mean, within the healthcare, I guess scenario, the experience of users is perhaps distinct in in its you know perhaps vulnerability. Where we're perhaps presenting in crisis, perhaps we're reticent to present. You know, we're we're going to battle on regardless. So I think there's all a whole gamut of scenarios that we can pitch our users in. So understanding those those their perspectives is really key. So putting ourselves in their in their shoes, you know, what does it look like to be isolated in a perhaps a rural community trying to engage healthcare? Perhaps you're not digitally savvy. So all these kind of user perspectives really should inform how our service is provided. And you mentioned something there which I've always been quite passionate about in in my own practice, which is putting ourselves, if you like, in the shoes of the consumer, in the shoes of the user, but actually then walking a mile in those shoes, doing the, the, the process, going through that journey, I think is immensely important to understanding how our service is is operating. Bob, you're clearly involved with digitizing our healthcare services. What have you been doing? What have you been redesigning then? Well, uh, Digital Healthcare Wales as an organisation came into being on the 1st of April. So my current role has been around the establishment of the organisation, getting the new board in place and so on. But it's building on the work of a previous organisation called the NHS Wales Informatics Service, which has responsibility for oh, it's over 70 different national digital services and, and systems that it, that it runs is responsible for the, the infrastructure that underpins IM&T technology across the NHS in Wales, so the networks, the data centers, and so on and so forth. But where we're at now is the, the organization is, and I think really reinforced by the pandemic, you know, the kind of culture change that's happened over these last few months in terms of, as, as I said earlier, digital first, people embracing technologies, remote consultation with GPs, data sharing, so on and so forth. The possibilities, I think, are really opening up. So as we look to the future, as I say, this idea of digital first is growing in prominence at ministerial level as well, in terms of offering completely new pathways, I think, into healthcare systems. Because if you think about it, the majority of times people come into contact with healthcare systems, it's either a GP appointment, an outpatient appointment. Very often it's, it's a conversation, it's an opinion. There's not necessarily any intervention that necessarily means that has to be face-to-face. So there's a huge swathe of work that can be done virtually and is now accessing your GP, accessing outpatient appointments over the last 12 months online has become the norm. But as we look forward to the future, I think there's a whole variety of change that we're shifting. The the NHS is, is somewhat behind probably other sectors in terms of its use of technology and digital. So we're trying to open up the infrastructure and the architecture. Uh, we're moving to a sort of a cloud-based environment in terms of our data storage and data access and so on. But fundamentally, it's now about the shift to developing digital services for patients and the public. And we've got a whole program of work around that now. And that will include the development of apps, devices, other ways that people um, access services. So interesting for me, the kind of language of sort of user-centered design is quite novel for us. 
you won't find it normally being used across the the rest of the NHS. We'll talk about patient-centered design or patient-centered planning and so on, but user-centered design. We are really beginning to open that up now as we talk about needing to work with people to make access to health services easy using new technologies. And when then you use the term user-centered design, who do you see as the the users of the service? That's a really interesting question because I think sometimes defining who the user is in healthcare is 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 quite complicated. My start point would always be it's ultimately about the end user, the patient. But we provide things for a lot of people who aren't patients, the general public. There's a lot of things that we do which are around, you know, health and well-being advice, preventative programs, and so on. So they're not always patients, but also a lot of our systems in in the organisation we now they're focused on professionals. It's about making the job of doctors, nurses, therapists, others easier to do on a day-to-day basis. Can they access a clinical record? Can they act wherever they are? The answer is they can. Uh, Is that record up to date? Is it accurate? Can they access test results and so on and so forth? So the the answer is a bit more complicated. It isn't just about a sort of a a supplier-customer relationship. Our customers, in that sense, is quite a complex field, really, between sort of professionals of all sorts of types and and, and users of all sorts of types as well. I agree. That idea of, you know, the 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 user, the patient, the stakeholder, where does it go? The society, the civic, civic society. So I think one thing we are going to kind of do in, within design thinking is kind of map those stakeholders' networks. So the ecosystem is a word we've used previously in these podcasts. So I think mapping that ecosystem and those interactions are really key. So it's, it's kind of systems thinking. It's thinking how those relationships are evolved, how those relationships are formed. You know, in a commercial setting, it might be a transaction, a money transaction, but obviously in the healthcare or public service, it's a whole lot bigger, you know. So the, the family and friends of a patient are as much the stakeholders in, you know, preventative healthcare and, you know, mitigating further visits to the hospital, you know, for, for, a, for a service design proposition. So I think that's really important. I think any of us quite rightly would look at the NHS you know, slightly uniquely. It, it, it holds a, a very precious place, I think, in all of our cultural mindsets. But it's also recognised as being, you know, this this morass of complex connections. It's a complex environment. It's a complex system. And I'm just thinking about how, you know, what you say, Phil, about mapping out that ecosystem. I mean, where would we start? I mean, anyone listening to our podcast today, you know, they, they're not going to have perhaps a, an organization as complex as the NHS to look at, but but most organizations are complex in some way. So where, where would you start in that mapping process? I suppose it depends on the, the problem at hand or have it, how, how ill-defined the problem is. You know, the, the nature of systemic problems, behavioral problems, health problems are that they are <laughs> very tangled, very complex, involve lots of stakeholders. So really that goes back to the design thinking mindset of saying we don't know the problem. We know there's an issue, we know there's a challenge, but we haven't defined what the specific problems are about this issue. So really defining the problem is really where we start. So in a healthcare environment, like I said, the patient experience is the central core of the problem, improving that patient experience. So we need to understand the context of that, the the, the environment for that. Is it you know, on, a, on a macro level looking at policy or is it on, a, on, a, on an individual personal level? You know, how do I get to my GP because <laughs> I don't have an internet connection? <laughs> There's no answer because it is massive but initially, and there is no one solution. So looking at individual perspectives, 
looking how that relates to a healthcare provision scenario, perhaps, you know, like I said earlier, within a rural environment, how that is distinct from a cosmopolitan, metropolitan environment. So I think that's each case has to be taken on its own on its own merits. It strikes me then, Phil, that uh, people listening to our podcast today probably need to pick up the phone and give us a call because they need our help. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Bob, uh, so you know, we, we've we've outlined you know the framework of of the NHS complex systems complex organization. How do you set about choosing the right problems to solve? I mean, I suppose initially, how do you identify what are the problems in your case? There's no systematic way, I suppose, Jonathan, to, I would say to that. But you know, one of the things you learn very quickly when you're in healthcare is that the problems kind of come to you. And your challenge really is about sifting through the things that you you need to do. So just 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 following on from sort of last comments really in terms of, you know, we have always, I suppose, if you think some sort of kind of macro problems, big issues that the health system is trying to contend with, how do you improve um, health outcomes, you know, people living longer, living healthier lives? How do we reduce health inequalities, which we know have been exacerbated by by the pandemic? You know, generally, how do we improve the, the, the integration across boundaries between services, the things that the health service does and social care does, for example, something else which has been highlighted yeah, can I just stop you there? When you're talking about health inequalities, not to to drive the conversation too far into um, the political realm, but health inequalities, is there an overlay there with digital inequalities as well? You know, we're trying to digitize and 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 go for a, a, a digital first approach, perhaps to our our healthcare. But are you seeing on the ground that there are digital inequalities? You know, the the, the inability for people to access. The digital environment? It's complex. I mean, there certainly are. And it's something we've got to be very mindful of. And I think Philip has alluded to this in terms of some people don't have devices. They don't have access to a, to a connection. They don't have the skills. They might not have the motivation. So we recognize that one of the flip sides of a move to digital first is that you can disenfranchise a proportion of the population who, do, who can't do those things. So you continue to have to look at other ways of making services accessible. The counter, though, is, and again, Philip's talked a couple of times about rurality as an issue in healthcare. I used to run services in, in, in Paris uh, for, a, for, a, for a number of years where we really struggled with access to services for people because travel distances, you know, going to an outpatient appointment, if you live in Mahantleth, can be a whole day out and probably involve four or five hours in a car for something that you can do through a telehealth connection and so on and so forth. So it works both ways. I think it's, you know, there are new problems that we've got to be mindful about, but also the new technologies are opening up access for people who would otherwise struggle to get, get to services in a timely way. So that, that takes us back to that, that question about, you know, on the ground, how then are uh, health uh, managers, you know, finding out what the problems are, you know, in, in practical terms. And, and as you say, they, you know, some of the problems are coming to you. And I'm thinking about our listeners who, who may be thinking about their own organizations how do they how do they collect that information how do they analyze it what should they put as a priority as a you know a kind of a pro- priority of of problems to solve we have that raft of problems which are always there and i've alluded to those already the kind of wicked issues but beneath that things come at you in and as a healthcare manager from a huge variety of different ways some of it comes from from politicians so that it's policy drivers that are pushing change a lot of it comes from the professions themselves in terms of professional development changing standards and so on but third sector organizations lobby groups direct contact from from patients and the public about the things that they perceive to be wrong 
all of this comes together into a sort of a complex soup almost, I suppose, for, for managers and boards to, to have to work with. So what you tend to do is you look at, you know, you try to distill that mess, if you want to use that word, try to distill that out into things that you can do something about and apply, you know, apply criteria to those. So, for example, one might be, are we in breach of a statutory duty? You know, is there a statutory duty to do something and we're not doing it? Some, I know a child protection issue or something could be an example. We look at the evidence. The NHS is very good. We have a lot of people who spend their time looking at research, looking at evidence, looking at best practice elsewhere to indicate the things that work, the things that we should be chasing. And sometimes it's because it's a crisis. Something is literally in your face. COVID obviously being the most recent example of that. But in my career, it's been all sorts of other things from things like the, you know, the, the, the fire service knocking on your door saying that your hospital is unsafe. What are you going to do about it? You have to respond to some of those sorts of, those sorts of challenges in a crisis. And you know, in, I've had two examples in my career where those sorts of problems, the sort of physical infrastructure problems, have led to rapid service change and institutional closures. Really interesting perspective you're you're bringing, Bob. Because I think whilst we view the NHS as being complex, you know, I think you're giving us an insight into, you know, from a manager's position, just how complex this this morass of of connections and issues and problems really is. Phil, from our perspective, what might we learn? Do we think from the healthcare sector? How what might we learn and, and take into a commercial business environment to to assist us with with developing those new business models that we're going to need uh, post covid i think as we we kind of uh, talked about there's there's a real shared agenda here those big big drivers those big societal challenges you know whether it's aging society digital enablement new consumerism <laughs> new new expectations from our consumers our customers be their users you know or patients, et cetera. So I think there's a shared agenda here. You know, that idea of affordability and convenience to customers goes across, you know, public, private sector really. So I think, you know, perhaps we're quite privileged from a UK perspective, you know, with the NHS that the idea of expense and affordability and accessibility is top of the agenda. You know, we're quite fortunate in that respect. So I think from a commercial point of view, you know, I think this is kind of what can we learn? I think it's quite interesting. So this is an exercise we kind of do on the design thinking program. It's about this idea of analogies. So it looks at hospitals and hospitality. So what, what can these two things learn from each other? You know, so if I think about how healthcare might have an issue with how do we provide a human touch? We're stretched, our services are stretched, or we're manically busy. So I think if we draw an analogy between hospitals and hospitality, you know, where hospitality and it's an intense competitive marketplace. Where I live in Whitchurch in North Cardiff, there's actually five coffee shops <laughs> and more as we speak being built. So I think, you know, this idea of competition, which drives innovation, of course, you know, so for example, in a coffee shop, you the embellishment on top of your coffee, the hearts put on the, on the throth on your coffee. How might that translate into a healthcare environment? It's like one exercise we look at. So perhaps within the children's ward, plasters with familiar faces on the on the on the characters on it so to to appease you know some of the the stress of being in a hospital environment so i think we try and provoke thinking you know to try to share the learning really so their norms of understanding you know what what does a really personalized service look like within within a, within a healthcare environment what might future scenarios impact on this you know the technology development in this side in in my practice i encourage people to 
to look for best practice in sectors that are not the ones that they're in. Steal things remorselessly, actually, from from <laughs> elsewhere. You know, good ideas or or ways of delivering service and so on. Within that vein of thought, Bob, you you mentioned that you're looking at best practice elsewhere. Where do you see best practice in the delivery of health and care uh, service then, from a from a digital first perspective? There's a number of places where um, in the world, Estonia, Denmark, just to, to name two countries, who've done really quite remarkable things in terms of building their services based around digital platforms uh, and, and significant change. But, you know, I suppose my starting point for us is it's, it's not normally, it, the question's probably not normally about who's doing digital really well. It's about who's delivering and, you know, what's happening in terms of health services delivery more generally, and then thinking, I suppose, about how digital is an enabler and a tool that helps us to deliver some of those things. So, you know, in healthcare terms, it, it's clearly a global issue. You know, we look everywhere. You, you see differences because of the nature of systems. So there's only so much you can learn from the states, for example. The states may be technologically the most advanced healthcare system in the world, but in terms of how it delivers services to people through a market model, it's very different from where we are. So you've got to be a little bit cautious about what you can lift and shift. But generally speaking, we've just got to sort of cast our eyes, you know, cast our eyes wide. Even sharing amongst yourself sometimes is a challenge. And I think that's one of the big things I've learned about kind of innovation and change in healthcare is we often have so much that we want to do, so many possibilities, but doing them at scale, doing them at pace, getting the spread of innovation is one of the big challenges. And challenge, does that equate to an element of risk here? A service redesign, any redesign in, in any organization comes with potential benefits, but there's also potential risk. Again, in your context, Bob, what are the risks that you, you perhaps can foresee that you may have to overcome? I mean, there are, there are many in terms of service failure. I mean, if we had a digital failure, for example, and you know, clinicians can't access patients' notes and, and, and records and, and results and so on, ultimately in healthcare terms, it can be a matter of life and death. So the risks, the stakes really are quite high. But very often they're financial, very often they're reputational, they, you know, they're about efficiency and so on. I, I tend to think of it in terms of looking at you know, what can I do as an individual in terms of risk mitigation. And, you know, that's about helping people understand the boundaries around their roles, their professional remits and where they can't cross those boundaries. So there's a responsibility on the individual in healthcare, but also corporately. So as an organ and as a new organization, for example, one of the things we've been doing just over this last week as digital health and care wells is talking about our risk appetite. What are the things that we're prepared to do as an organization? Because we've seen through the pandemic that when some of the barriers to change are removed, whether they're legislative or, or financial, financial a big one in the, during the pandemic, things happen really quickly. But equally, you've got to be very careful that you, you don't sleepwalk into an area. So in, an example might be data sharing. During the pandemic, we've been enabled to share data between agencies in a way that we couldn't before. But equally, there's a whole legislative framework around that, isn't there, in terms of data protection that we have to be very mindful of and ensure that moving forward, we're not tripping over ourselves in those sorts of areas. So it really is a balance, but it's that individual and corporate lenses, I think, that you have to look at the, the, the issue of risk through. I like your terminology around you know, that appetite to risk. It strikes me that many organizations, and actually particularly service organizations, we were talking earlier on about this, this concept of user experience 
uh, putting the, uh, the, the the shoes of the user on, if you like, and walking through that journey. But I, I think along with that, we should we should spend some time in organisations attempting to you know not not only map out what our ecosystem looks like, but map within it where the there is risk appetite and where there 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 needs to be risk mitigation so that 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 can be managed hand in hand with service redesign phil from a, a service redesign perspective any thoughts on illustrations and examples that we may have bob mentioned you know the us and there's so there's kind of within the design thinking perhaps privileged academic perspective, there's this kind of places like the Mayo Clinic in the US that are lauded as best practice. Uh, So what does that look like? You know, they talk about failing fast experiments with users. They talk about all the terminology that we've been discussing in these podcasts about what does the experience of going through a a body scan MRI look like? Why, what the fears and hopes, the dreams of people doing in that? And what what does research look like? So it's a really research-led kind of innovation mindset that they're in and that's feeding into the actual delivery on the ground so i think those those kind of best practices we take and you know case studies are quite light on the ground actually when you search for this thing so i think it's all about you know organizational capacity so for google you know a piloting you know failing a $50,000 pilot project is it's palatable, but, uh, you know, more palatable than a half a million product launch. So I think going back to that risk, you know, doing things that allow you to fail early, fail cheaply, and iterate fastly is what we're talking about. So for the NHS, that may, from an external perspective, be seen as quite a slow-moving, risk-averse, <laughs> um, perhaps, perhaps Bob can correct me on this, um, organization, you know, as a public sector organization. So I think the idea of being static and inert is not something we we kind of equate to keeping up with the pace of change, the pace of technology adoption in, in the commercial zone. I, I, th- I think you've you've given us some really pertinent points there to consider when perhaps uh, adopting an approach uh, or implementing an approach to service redesign. Last word to you, Bob, from your uh, experiences. A few words of of wisdom about uh, how they might wish to to approach a, a redesign. I think we've touched on a number of these, Jonathan. I mean, uh, the first thing I would say it is it is start with the user and and work out. You have to understand people's experiences, the nature of the problem before you can design solutions to the problems that we have. I think there's something about developing the systems and processes in your organisations, so a sort of improvement method that you use consistently. But fundamentally for me, I think there's, there's something about the vision of the future in, in terms of what's better. My experience in healthcare, and I often talk to trainees about this, is in terms of how do things change and kind of three things. You know, one is a service becomes redundant. I once closed a hospital in an Iron Bevan's constituency without a murmur. Why? Because there were no patients in it because the clinical model had moved on. So redundancy is one thing. Crisis, COVID, things change incredibly dramatically. But most of the time, it's because it's a better offer. You know, if you're developing something, if the change that you're trying to bring through is palpably better and people can see that their experience will be improved, they'll support that kind of change, whether that's inside the you know, professionals inside the service or service users, patients, the public outside. But in healthcare, it does take time. Going back to Philip's point, you know, we're regulated organizations, we're public service, so we have to abide by certain standards and rules and so on. But change does happen. But, you know, my final point on that is I was involved 20 years ago in setting up a 
new change program in Gwent around the redesign of hospital services. It's called Clinical Futures. That program is still running. The ultimate end of that was the commissioning of the new hospital in Cumbran just this year. 20 years uh, is how long that whole change program takes. And that's not unusual for big system change in healthcare systems. Thank you both for uh, a fascinating and insightful look at service redesign today. I think as we move forward as a business and organizational community post COVID-19, I suspect the the concept of, of digital first and everything that that means will become far more central to our business model constructions and our strategic thinking. If you want to hear more of the Change Management Podcast, please don't forget to follow us in the normal way. Uh, Thank you for listening. And again, thank you to our guest, Bob Hudson. To find out more about this podcast and our business services at USW, please visit southwales.ac.uk forward slash business.